Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Ford. This is the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history, as told by the Tennessee Stud. Welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller, what's up, Stud? Oh man, just uh, pleased to be here. Good Lord's uh, provided me with another another Studcast opportunity, and uh, and I'm sort of looking forward to it. Uh, we've been uh, we've been doing doing some pretty good uh, running here, man. Uh, in uh, 1977 so far, and we're kind of into a real good time frame. And and today we're we're going to be basically into the semifinals of the Cadillac tournament, man. We're getting close to the end of that big tournament. A lot of stuff happening. I'm real glad to be here and um, and ready to go whenever you are, my man. Yeah, I think I'm good to go. And listen, congratulations, because you've been doing this thing and nonstop. I cannot think of a week, an opportunity that you might have had that you did not take time off. You're at 180 five plus hours of this studcast and then countless hours on super studcast as well and all available at tnstud.com tnstud.com so every week you pour it out at least one hour last week's show for example it just got good it was an hour 36 and it's all free at tnstud.com as a matter of fact at tnstud.com there is the stud store and i hear that those southeastern continental five pack dvds are taking off again, Ron. That is 60 tremendous old-school matches, the interviews, special outside videos, and a present-day interview from you in every one of the five DVDs, more than 12 hours of some of the greatest wrestlers and wrestling in history. These DVDs include the first-ever encounter between Andre the Giant and the soon-to-be Hulk Hogan on TV in an arm wrestling contest that gets out of hand. Matches with Arn Anderson, Mr. Olympia, before they were famous. The Armstrongs, including Brad, you and Rob, Tommy Wildfire Rich, and Johnny Rich, the Nightmares. Help me out, Ron. Name a few in this great DVD offer, because it is absolutely loaded. Jeez, you've covered a whole bunch of them, man. But uh, <laughs> heck, uh, 
Now they go all the way up to Ric Flair. Ric Flair's in these boys. Uh, Austin Idol is in them. Adrian Street. Uh, wow, you got to get crazy to get Adrian Street. Uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, The Assassin. Kevin Sullivan and his New Guinea Headhunters. They're a sight to behold. And, uh, and do you know, uh, besides that, you've got a cage match that led to Bob Armstrong becoming the bullet. Uh, it's in these in this series. And, and my original Tennessee stud stable, man, with Lord Humongous, Jimmy Golden, Arn Anderson, Boris Zukov, uh, Boomer Lynch, uh, you know, Tom Pritchard's in this, uh, Dirty White Boy, Dutch Mantel. I mean, wow. gosh, we could just go on names after name. Uh, it's pretty amazing. All of the wrestlers that are in these in this five DVD pack of videos. And out there, if you're a true fan and you really want to own a piece of, of old school history, and I think, uh, you know, the way things are now, uh, you're not going to get to ever see any of it anymore. So, you know, if you want to own your own little piece of it, these DVDs are just unbelievable. A great, tremendous offer. Of course, you talk about the interviews and stuff like that. Who was the announcer? Who was the host on the shows uh, on these? Uh, Charlie Platts on some of uh, some of them were southeastern uh, in the mid '80s. Uh, Gordon Soley uh, is on a lot of them once it becomes yeah. continental. So you know you've got a little bit of southeastern in these DVDs, and you've got some continental. And a lot of fans all over the country have never seen any of these and. If you never saw any of those matches, uh, you know, uh, it's really funny, Dave. Everybody, I've never seen one person that purchased these that didn't say these are absolutely phenomenal. Wow. You know, and so, uh, I mean, it, it is really, truly a great collection, and the price is pretty darn reasonable. I mean, you're not kidding at all. Five DVDs, only $39.99 at tnstud.com. Click on stud store, tnstud.com. That great low price of $39.99 includes free shipping. It's the best deal in wrestling. We're going to be talking about that again in this studcast and providing the information later. All right. So where are we riding today, Ron? So our today's training, man, uh, starts us off when I ride. And uh, we're going back to St. Louis for my second charity basketball game in 1977. Geez, I'm about to become a basketball player again, man, it seemed like. And uh, we're taking a closer look at what other territories were doing in their communities back in those days. So we're going to jump into February of 1977. In this one, we're going to wrestle with that great card on Sunday afternoon, February 6, 1977, in the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. Jimmy Golden's going to get his first shot at the Mongolian Stomper Southeastern title. The semifinals of the Cadillac Tournament. It's only four guys left. After this week's episode, next week, we're going to be talking about somebody driving a beautiful Cadillac out of the Coliseum. The semifinals in this one uh, is Bob Armstrong against Dick Slater and Ronnie Garvin against my brother, Robert Fuller. Plus, there's three other matches on that card. And we'll talk about the TV that promotes that card. We'll give you everybody the results, and we'll talk about the attendance which has just been rocking, man, uh, in all of 1977 to this point. Then we're going to finish with another question from the learning tree. And this one has to do with the match on the this week's card that we're talking about between Dick Steinborn and the Gladiator. And a gentleman named Thomas Stone asked, 
why have you waited so long to pull the trigger on the Dick Stein born and gladiator angle? So <laughs> we're going to get the answer to that, uh, what I've been sitting on and why I've been sitting on it. So um, we're going to have a good one. Maybe Thomas is not the only person thinking that question. So at least he said it out loud. All right. It sounds like another great ride, Ron. So my horse, Slewfoot Sue is saddled up and we are ready to gallop into history. Let's go. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> how you going to gallop on a horse named Slewfoot Sue, man? Oh, come on. Man. <laughs> Can she even walk, much less gallop? <laughs> I mean, uh, what is a Slewfoot? I mean, does that mean she's got a bad hoof or, uh, or where do you get these horses, man? You know, do you go to the old horse retirement home, man? To find these horses? The the old horse retirement home. That oh, that's a good one, Ron. So there you go, making fun of my horse again. And I'm it's getting a little old, but every week I try to I try to double down on my horse. So this week is is Slewfoot Sue, and she's gonna be just fine. Don't you worry, buddy. Oh, okay. Thanks. All right. So I'm just hoping she can keep up today, Dave. So uh hey. and you know, Thanks. these these studs cats are they're, they're just getting better and better, man. And uh and they seem to be more filled with history. And this one starts, yeah. obviously, in the winter of 1977. So in today's training, we're going to talk about another charity basketball game that I was involved in. Two stud casts ago, we talked about a Southeastern champion charity basketball game. A month after the game, we're going to cover today. So I'm a month earlier than the, the one in uh, Knoxville. I'm, I'm playing in one in St. Louis. And this game happened to be on Saturday night before last week's Studcast Knoxville show of Sunday, January 30th. In fact, I missed the show because I was in St. Louis and I couldn't get back in time. And Ronnie Garvin actually beat me without having to put his hands on me one by forfeit because I didn't show up in the quarterfinals. So today we're going to wear those owner's hats. And I want to compare what one other owner was doing in their operation to become a greater part of their city and the communities like we were trying to do with Southeastern. And to do so, let's look at the how another territory and its owner was handling their relationships, especially with these charity type things and with local organizations way back in 1977. So, you know, a lot of territories were getting involved in this type of stuff. And if they weren't, they should have been. So I shouldn't call this a territory, really, because it was basically just one city, and it rarely ever ran any other small city around it. The city I'm talking about was St. Louis, and its owner and promoter was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, Sam Muchnick. So obviously, Sam had immense power in the National Wrestling Alliance. He was one of the founders, along with my granddad, uh, Roy Welch, who was a founder, too, of the same time period, 1948, I believe, is when the National Wrestling Alliance was put together. Sam ran his city like no other promoter in the world. Every territory usually had its own wrestlers. Sam had his choice of wrestlers from all the territories around the country and around the world every other Friday night when he ran St. Louis. And if you were invited by Muchnick to work in St. Louis, it usually meant you were becoming a star in the sport. And uh, when he asked a promoter or an owner of a territory if he could use a certain guy on one of his shows, boy, he never got denied. <laughs> he really carried a lot of weight. And so, you know, they said, absolutely, Sam. How many times you want him? 
So I was one of those lucky wrestlers in May of 1973 to get my first invite to St. Louis. And I'd work almost every show and TV there for the next year after that May in 1973. When I started Southeastern, my own company in the fall of 1974, boy, all of a sudden my regular shots to St. Louis were done. You know, and, and I really didn't want to go anymore at that point. I wanted to build my own company. So Sam had been the major wrestling owner of St. Louis for many years. He was highly successful owner, obviously, and backer of other big-time sports in that city, a big-time backer of uh, other sporting teams. And to prove that point, he used to close down his company in the summer, which was the best time of the year for wrestling. He would shut his company down to avoid competing with the St. Louis Cardinal baseball team. So his love for St. Louis and its sports teams came from the fact that he once worked for the biggest newspaper in St. Louis, and he worked as a sports writer. So he grew up as a big sports fan in St. Louis. So let's get back to that basketball game in St. Louis on a Saturday night in January 1977. And Sam had asked me a year earlier, he knew this game was going to happen a year ahead of time, to hold that night for him so that I could fly to St. Louis to play in a basketball game for him. So the wrestlers and we were going to play there was going to be the wrestlers against the st louis police department so when i arrived at the st louis university basketball building where the game was going to be i encountered obviously the other wrestlers on this team representing sam and i'll tell you what sam was a pretty good recruiter he really had some tall dudes uh, david von eric was on that team he's about six six Big John Studd at about 6'8 was on that team also. Uh, Greg yeah. Gagne, the son of legend Vern Gagne. Scott Casey were the guards on the team. We had a much taller team than the one we had put together in for the Knoxville game. It was a month after that. And the police didn't have anyone, you know, over 6'6". So I found out right away that neither Von Erich or Big John Studd had much basketball experience. It, uh -oh. They weren't cut out for the game, I, uh, that was for sure. And uh, pretty much the same went for Ganya and Scott Casey. I mean, you know, uh, I guess not a lot of uh, wrestlers were former basketball players. So it turned out that I had to not only do the rebounding on one end, but I had to take the ball up court, and then I had to score the goal if we was going to get into it. <laughs> so, so thank goodness, man, the St. Louis police team, they were absolutely horrible. You know, so. <laughs> By the time we got into the second half, we had a huge lead. I couldn't believe it. So I asked Sam, I said, you know, Sam, these are your policemen. They work your matches and you want to have a good relationship. But we're kicking their ass pretty good here. You know, I mean, don't you think maybe you ought to sit me down? And surprisingly, he said, he said, Ron, I, I don't mind beating them badly. He said, they've been bragging like hell for a year of how they were going to trounce <laughs> us. And he goes, so he says, no, I don't want you to sit down. I want you to stay in the game, and I want to run the score up. So, <laughs> so boy, we did. We doubled their points. It was really horrible. I, I felt bad for the police. So, and, uh, and then, you know, I want to finish this training with some comparisons of these two basketball games now. One of them's in St. Louis. The other was held in Knoxville. And both of those games, obviously, were teams – against the wrestlers. So St. Louis had policemen only on their team. 
And then that Knoxville game that we had, we had local sports personalities. We had politicians, two uh, former mayor and a present mayor. We had uh, former basketball, football, baseball players. And, um, and we also had a gold medal Olympic champion on that team. So Southeastern competition was obviously much stronger than the competition that we played in St. Louis. So two guys on their team. In, uh, in Knoxville were former NBA and ABA players. Uh, and both of them were about my height. So, you know, they had a really tall team and they had a heck of a lot of stars on it. Uh, so I, I had no one on my wrestling team that was over six feet other than me. So they drew about a thousand people uh, that night in St. Louis and they collected, uh, you know, much less than we did for charity because we end up drawing three times that many people, about 3,000 people. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot more was collected for charity. Now, fans could hardly be heard in St. Louis's basketball arena. That was a very small crowd for a big old building like that. But in Knoxville, that 3,000 people sounded like 6,000 in the gym we were playing in. So wrestlers won both games uh, in St. Louis. We won by a lot. In Knoxville, we didn't win by quite as much. And I doubt Sam had ever, after that, had another charity basketball game because we embarrassed our opponents so badly <laughs> that, uh, gosh, I don't think they ever wanted to do that again. So we mm-hmm. weren't even off the court in Knoxville when we were playing that game before the opponents we were playing against were challenging us for a game the following year. We hadn't even won this one yet. And they're already saying, we want to do this next year. You know, you're, you're beating us. You're beating us too much. You know, so we were pretty smart about it. I had them go ahead and announce, man, that we're going to do this again next year. And the following year, we're going to draw an even bigger crowd. So, you know, we're going to make more money for charity. And that was a great thing to, to be involved with. And, you know, not a lot of places in the country or territories uh, were doing that type of thing. Obviously, some of you wrestling promoters like you and other owners had really big hearts. It must have been fun, Ron, being on the winning team at both of those games, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's always fun to win, man. You know, the, yeah. you know, it's a lot, a lot more fun to win than lose. But, you know, everybody in those games were big winners, you know, uh, by just having the opportunity to do something for charity and to help others. So, you know, there oh, were no losers in those games, in my opinion. You you couldn't lose because you were doing something good. I think everybody would have to agree with that, Ron. All right, so where are we headed now? Well, we're going to ride into February in 1977, uh, our first February card in 1977, and this is a loaded card, man. And it includes, obviously, the semifinals of the long Cadillac tournament that had been going for almost three months at this point. And we're going to break down that card in the Knoxville Coliseum on Sunday afternoon, February 6, 1977. Opening match was a still improving Rip Smith uh, who came out of Florida. He was taken on a great hill in this in the opening match. Uh, a guy that was in his prime at this point from Australia, Bill Dundee. That's going to be a great match, obviously. Second match was the only tag match on this card. And the Von Steigers wouldn't re- put up their belts against the very strong team that they were going to be wrestling against. And uh, I, I knew why they wouldn't want to put up their belts the first time. And uh, that team uh, was two guys that had been enemies, big-time enemies in Southeastern in 1975. 
I was tag teaming with Ron Wright in one of those rare tag matches that we worked together. Third match was the one the fans had been looking forward to for a long time. Dick Steinborn, boy, he was eager to get his hands on the man who had been imitating him for months, and that's the new gladiator, Jim Dalton. So the first of two semifinal Cadillac matches were next. Bob Armstrong faced the boy, a guy that was extremely unpredictable. And everywhere he went, that that was really his kind of his nickname, unpredictable. You know, nobody, you didn't know what you were going to get from Dick Slater from night after night. And the winner of that, Bob Armstrong and Dick Slater, is going to move on to the finals for the pink Cadillac the following week. Second semifinal match was Ronnie Garvin without a manager against Rob Fuller, my brother. So the main event was Jimmy Golden. He's coming off this one-hour draw with the World Junior Heavyweight Champion Nelson Royal from the week before and a tremendous wrestling match that fans went away just, just really, really impressed with Jimmy. And now he's got his shot at the Southeastern Championship this time, though, he's going to be in against somebody totally different than Nelson Royal. He's going to be in the ring with the Stomper, the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson. Obviously, another tremendous card. They just keep on coming. I bet we're going to be diving, I want to break out my crystal ball here, into the TV of Saturday, February 5th, the day before the matches you just talked about. Boy, your 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 crystal ball and your calendar, man. Whatever it is you you got, man, it's working. You know, Bang. so you're you're right there, man. Uh, let's just see. Well, I got something for you, here, man. Uh, let's just see how accurate that TV calendar is of yours or your crystal ball. So, <laughs> right. so I'm gonna ask you a question here, Dave. So this month, which is February of 1977, has right. something special about it. Uh, does your calendar tell you what that could be? Mm. To answer that, Ron, my horse, Slewfoot Sue, has to be running real fast, right? Oh, yes, sir. Real, real fast, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to take a, a shot at your question. I've got some history in the radio business. So I'm going to be guessing that the month of February is another rating book period. How about that? Bang! Uh <laughs> wow, good for you, man. Your crystal ball is is a, it's even better than I thought it was, man. You are welcome. Thank and, you. And I think, man, if if Slewfoot Sue is carrying you that that fast, man, you better keep riding her, man. Uh, you so bet. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, this is the first TV of February ratings month of 1977, and the next four Saturdays, including this one, is uh, critical to the numbers that uh, the game, kind of the game the TV stations played four times a year is uh, how big a numbers can you create in that book, you know? So this TV opened with a shot of of a bloody brother of mine, Rob, uh, and uh, it's behind less at the set as usual, and it's a still shot, and Rob's got his hand raised. He's standing over top uh, looking down at the Mongolian Stomper, who he had just beaten with a small package. And uh, the Stomper's, (laughs) the Stomper's, his look is like he's totally stunned. Like, what in the hell? How did that happen? So also in the shot behind Rob is Ronnie Garvin down at ringside. Okay. So 
Les going to open this show up. He's sitting at the set with Don Carson. He's got an angry Mongolian stopper who's wearing the southeastern belt. He's not pumping that that uh, tire, you know, that uh, big spring, truck spring that he normally had. He's just basically pacing behind him. He's he's angry about the picture that's on the screen behind him, for one thing, and the fact that he lost. So Carson started out, man, as soon as the red light appeared on the camera, before Les even had a chance to say a single word. And he started with his normal deal, Les Thatcher. He goes, you know, he's screaming in his usual manner. He goes, look closely at this huge picture behind us and tell me what is wrong with it. So, you know, Les took his time. You know, he's seeing the picture actually on the monitor in front of him, too. And, uh, you know, then then finally he says something about, I guess what is wrong with it, uh, Don, is, as far as you're concerned, he said, is the fact that Robert Fuller is standing over your stomper with his hand in the air, and he's just eliminated your stomper and your possibility <laughs> of winning the Cadillac. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so Don, Don, as usual, he screams, no, Thatcher, he goes. That's not what I see. <laughs> I see right there on the far side of the ring, Ronnie Garvin goes, look at him. Right next to the to Rob Fuller's leg is, is Ronnie Garvin. He goes, what is he doing there at the end of a match that he doesn't even belong in? You know, so that stayed silent. <laughs> you know, Carson just, hey, Carson just rolled on with it. He goes, he goes, why is he there, Thatcher? He, he just keeps pushing less. He, you know, he, he cost my stomper the match, and he cost me a Cadillac, you know? So, mm -hmm. so Les says, uh, well, Don, he goes, uh, he didn't interfere in the match, did he? he? He didn't touch either of the two guys in the ring, did he? So, you know, <laughs> that threw Don. Now, Don fumbled around. He didn't have an answer for that. So Les just rolled on him, man. He says, uh, you know, all I saw while I was there at the Coliseum yesterday, uh, you know, the last Sunday, he goes, it was Ronnie Garvin going after you. And he says, and, and since you brought this up, he says, Bill Kincaid, who was the director of the program, he says, Bill, can you play that other video pertaining to these two guys? So almost instantly, Bill was really sharp. He was right on it. Almost instantly on the screen popped a picture of Carson at ringside on the microphone. It was the video of what happened when Garvin won the forfeit uh, the Sunday before against me, and it it showed not just Carson talking. You actually saw the, what he was saying, and, it, and he was just really berating Garvin for accepting a forfeit win, you know. Uh, so after Carson's comments, Garvin chased him from the ring area. <laughs> that was all on video. Boy, now Don's getting madder. You know, he sees like he's screaming at Les now. Who told you to run that Thatcher? You know, he goes, that has nothing to do with my stomper, and you know, who lost a very important match. So Les says, oh, yeah, I, I think it does, Don. He says, I think your stomper got beat because he took his focus off as an opponent and, and he put it on Garvin to keep Garvin from kicking your butt. <laughs> he goes, right? <laughs> oh, now Carson's face got red. And the stomper's mad too now. You know, Carson ain't getting it done. And the less is making him look a little foolish. 
So, uh, boy, things are changing big time. And, uh, you know, he's got a red face now. And uh, Stomper leaned over uh, between Carson and Les, and he just slammed his hand down on that desk, man. Wow, it just popped like crazy. Uh, Les almost fell out of his chair. Carson jumped up, man, and he screamed at Les, you pay for this, Thatcher. And him and Mm. Stomper, they went to the ring. They're in that first match. And there was two opponents waiting in the ring for the Mongolian Stomper. So, you know, and that was because Carson the week before had said every time his stomper wrestled on TV, he wanted to be against two guys rather than just one. So (laughs) Carson barely had time to take the championship belt off of the stomper's waist before the stomper stormed into the ring. And so the announcer, Phil Rainey, who was a small guy, you know, and and Phil was maybe more afraid of the stomper than the fans were. (laughs) Phil just, as soon as Stomper shot up into the ring, uh, Phil just bypassed him and shot out onto the floor, and he left the ring, didn't even introduce the match. He didn't introduce the opponent to nobody. So Stomper, boy, he, he he was mad. He was really on fire, man, and he just tore into the both those poor guys, and he did about the same thing he had done uh, the week before. And he, he bloodied both those guys. He stomped them in the face several times. He piled them on top of each other, and he covered both of them, and he got him three count. Didn't take him long, probably three, four minutes, and he had not beaten just one guy. He'd beaten two. Uh, and the TV crowd was just like it was the week before. And and every time that the Stomper was in the studio at all, they were just speechless and totally silent. It's like they ain't even seeing what's going on. They're scared to do anything or, or to scream. Or do, it was It was amazing how much effect he had on them. And Carson and the Stomper, then they returned to the set. And uh, the break's supposed to be two minutes before you get to the interview, but uh, they had to prolong the break because they had to <laughs> remove these two bleeding wrestlers from the ring. took a little while to get them out, so the, they had to take a little longer break than normal. So when they came to the interview, now Carson's sitting there with less again at the set. His man's gone in, destroyed two guys. And this time, when the camera comes on, the light comes on, he says, Thatcher, I want you out of here. He says, I want you up and gone. I want this my, by myself. So he forced Les to get up and, uh, and leave the studio. So Carson took the entire two minutes, obviously, to berate everybody he could think of. And he was about as upset as I'd ever seen him before. I think he was having a bad day. And, uh, and he was getting mad about it. So he started <laughs> on Garvin, you know, and hey, Carson had didn't have bad days when it came to talking. He was pretty cocky and got that job done. But, boy, he was not having a good day. So he started out talking about Garvin and the fact that Garvin was an idiot not to let him manage him, you know. And now, look, that idiot has done cost me a Cadillac, you know, so – Then he moved from Garvin to Rob, and he talked about how much blood Rob had lost in the last two weeks in a row because he had to wrestle the Stomper twice. He said Rob had lost his southeastern belt to Stomper two weeks ago, and this past Sunday, I think he said he lost his dignity. (laughs) (laughs) Stomper just dominated him. (laughs) One week he lost the belt, the next week his dignity, man. (laughs) So his win over Stomper was an absolute fluke, he said. And it would never, guaranteed never, ever happen again, you know. And then he got to Jimmy Golden, who he was actually, Stomper was going to be wrestling. 
And uh, he said uh, Jimmy Golden had absolutely no chance against his stomper for the title tomorrow afternoon. He said the Mongolian stomper was infinitely better than Nelson Royal, who Golden couldn't beat in an hour last Saturday. He said Golden couldn't beat my stomper in a month. And then he changed it and he said, no, he couldn't beat him ever. <laughs> so he promised his stomper was going to make an example out of Jimmy Golden tomorrow. So second match was the Von Steigers in the Southeastern Tag Championship on TV. I wonder why. What do you what do you think about that, Dave? What could be the reason for that? You know? Mm, yeah. That 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 ratings, that maybe that maybe that rating month is a it, it, we're gonna start out with a championship match right away on the first week of ratings month. Uh, they won strong. Yeah. Yep. They they won strong. They used the Boston Crab. They beat Ron Wright's brother, Don Wright, and the former Inferno, Rocky Rocky Smith, a pretty good team, actually. And Ron Wright and I made the second interview. We went to the set with Les, and the Von Steiger brothers went into Studio B. It wasn't a title match, and uh, it was one of the first tag matches that Ron Wright and I had together in a very long time. I, I don't know exactly how long it would have been, but it might have been as long as a year since he and I had wrestled together as partners. So wow. in this interview, obviously Ron finishes with his patented Tennessee dog whooping, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, you know, so, so I had a maybe 20 seconds left on the clock, you know, and uh, so uh, I just added uh, an invitation to his style of talk. Uh, and I said, you know, as, as a Tennessee stud, he said, I can do some Tennessee dog whooping too. <laughs> boy, we got a huge pop. I mean, they popped on his and then they really popped on mine. And then I looked over at him and he cracked up. He never cracked up, but he cracked up because he'd never heard me imitate him. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, yeah. was that the first time that he had seen you do that? That's the first time he'd ever heard me imitate him. And I didn't tell him I was going to do it. And I didn't know right. that he was going to leave me right. with 20 seconds. I got time to fill, so I just I just said I'm gonna do some dog whooping too, and I put his horse <laughs> in there, and he was laughing when we got when we left the desk. He was like, "Gosh, Ron, you pretty good." <laughs> you know? so, so we were having some fun. What a TV show! I can only imagine that that inter what the, that interview sounded like. You and Ron Wright were probably as different as two men. Could be. That's awesome right there. All right. Hey, we're at a good point to take a break. Let's do that. This stud cast with a lot more fun is coming up. Don't leave us. Stay right here. We'll be right back. When you go to TNstud.com, you find almost everything wrestling. All 185 stud cast, 37 super stud cast, including the new one, number 37, a tribute to the legendary Danny Hodge. Jerry Briscoe and Bill Watts also paid their tributes in this three hours of great storytelling about America's best wrestler. The fantastic Southeastern Continental DVD 5-pack with 60 matches and over 12 hours of old school stars. It's all there. 
Center. Just click Stud Store and own your piece of history for only $39.99, including shipping. You'll also find t-shirts, photos, and Ron's hot novel, Brutus. The autographed copy, $29.99, or the book alone, $19.99, and that includes shipping. There are videos of the Stud's matches, a gallery of photos. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Literally hundreds of wrestling photos. You ain't dreaming. You seeing me live and in living color. Related to the Studcast, Super Studcast, his family members. I want to tell these people something about myself. Comments from fans and so much more. Because today, ladies and gentlemen, is a red letter day for wrestling. It's all at TNStud.com. If ain't like nothing you've seen before, believe it. Visit the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller Welch, today. Now there is truly a man. And stay a while at TNStud.com. Ain't he something? Look how big and bad he is. Ain't he something? Come get you some. We are back. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It's called a Studcast. You can get all of these Studcasts at TNStud.com. That's TNStud.com. And you'll find all of the, every stud cast, all 185 plus. We've been talking about those five packs of DVDs. They're going to be available there as well. And that is one of the hottest deals in wrestling. All right, stud, where to now? Well, we're going right into the personality profile, middle of the TV show. And this one obviously is all about the last four men in the Cadillac tournament. Uh, Rob and Bob Armstrong, they're going to sit with Les at the set in those big old chairs that, uh, that they're in all the time. And uh, Ronnie Garvin is going to be on an interview that's pre-recorded earlier in the day before the TV started. Uh, Dick Slater is going to be seen in a video shot uh, with him and Gordon Soley from Florida that was sent in uh, that he's in the semifinals and has a chance to win himself a Cadillac. So uh, Les opens a profile, obviously with Bob and Rob. They're sitting in the chairs, and he welcomes the two of them, and he congratulates them basically for making it to the last four in the Cadillac tournament. And he started with a little-known fact in Southeastern that the two of them had been the Georgia Tag Champions for a long period of time in the early 1970s which is, you know, about at this point, about seven years uh, ahead of this time. This is probably more about 72 or so when Rob and he were champions. And he said, you know, think about it. They could end up wrestling each other if they won their matches, you know, and uh, haven't been tag partners, and they might end up being, uh, being against each other if both were to win on the following afternoon. So, you know, that got a really good reaction from the fans in the main studio because the, they do, they were doing this profile live, and those people are sitting right there watching it and, uh, and a part of it, actually. So all the interviews were great, especially Ronnie Garvin's, man. Uh, you know, he was 100% heel, but he mentioned how much he hated Don Carson right off in his interview. And then he said he was now his own man, and nobody spoke for him anymore. He said he didn't need anybody, and he didn't want anybody sticking their nose into his business, uh-huh. you know, because Don Carson had come down uh, the Sunday before and uh, berated him uh, about you know taking a forfeit win, and uh, and he got pissed and he went after Carson too. So you know he 
He didn't want anybody sticking in sticking their nose in his business. And since he was working with Rob, he reminded him during this interview that he hurt me uh, several months back for money. And he was happy about it. He said, mm. he said you know, I spent all of it. Really loved it. You know? And he says, so he says, now with this big car as the prize, he goes, imagine, Robert, how bad I'm going to hurt you tomorrow. There <laughs> 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 was a heck of an interview for a guy that's just now starting to interview. It was really, really a good one. In fact, after it was over, both Rob and I talked about, you know, how excited we were about Garvin's ability to interview. And, uh, and we both had a real good feeling that he was going to be fine, man, on his own. He wasn't going to need a manager. So the third TV match was the Gladiator, the new Gladiator. Uh, Dick Steinborn, the old Gladiator, joined Les at the set to watch the match. And uh, Les, obviously Les and Dick Steinborn, while the match is going on, they talked about Dick's history in Southeastern, which is pretty, pretty phenomenal. And actually, it's going to be later on in the learning tree. Uh, we're going to go, go more into that, that uh, Dick Steinborn's history with Southeastern. And the Gladiator, during the course of this match, kept paying a lot of attention to Steinborn at the set. Uh, you know, he was looking over there. He's making a point of it. So uh, at the end of the match, when the Gladiator won the match, he won it with a sleeper hole, which happened to be Dick Steinborn's move, too. Uh, he stayed in the middle of the ring, you know. He'd won the match, and instead of leaving and going to the dressing room, and he motioned for Steinborn, come on in. <laughs> so, boy, that's all it took, man. Steinborn, mm -hmm. I mean, he flew, man. He charged mm -hmm. that ring, and, uh, and the gladiator stopped him on the way in, and he ripped his shirt off of him, man. He just, and he started pounding on him, and the, and the referee tried to stop it, but he couldn't. Boy, he wasn't going to be able to stop these two. And they just went at each other like two madmen and wrestlers from the dressing room finally had to come out and they went to the ring and tried to stop it. It just kept going. I mean, the studio crowd, they loved it, man. They were all on their feet. And Les finally had to call for the director, Bill Kincaid. He said, Bill, we got to go to black. He said, so order can be restored here. You know, we got interviews coming up. So, uh, you know, very rarely did that, but uh, you had no choice. I mean, that, that fight looked like it was going to go on for a long time, and it did. But at that point, it didn't bother anything because we're taping it. And, uh, you know, if we're a little late getting the next interview started, it's still going to be fixed when they go to edit the tape. So the Gladiator goes and makes the next interview. He's in Studio B. Dick Steinborn finally gets separated from him, and he ends up on the set with Let's. Uh, he's there, his, his shirt's all ripped off of him, and uh, both guys are still breathing hard, gasping from the big fight they've already had, and they start the interview, you know, and so before the two minutes is done in the interview, they just left the studio. All of a sudden, the, the gladiator just disappears from the screen, and the big Steinborn jumps up, and they, they meet each other at the ring again, and they start on each other again. It's like the fight's on again. And gosh, man, that, that people in the studio had never seen. That had been the first time that had ever happened in which two guys were separated in different studios and end up getting together into the main studio and fighting again. Mm -hmm. And again, they had to come from the dressing room and pull them apart. So... Uh, their their thing is really cranked 
this point for sure. So Jimmy Golden, he closed out the TV and he had closed the TV the week before. In fact, he had drop kicked off the top rope, the world junior heavyweight champion the week before. And he won this match again with another drop kick off the top rope. And he went straight to the set with less. And boy, he tore into Don Carson. And the first thing he said is, Don Carson is the biggest jerk <laughs> that has ever been. And then he got into a, told a little story about his dad and his dad and Don Carson incident. And, uh, you know, he, he let fans know that his father was a wrestling promoter. And, uh, and before Jimmy ever started, that uh, Don Carson was wrestling for his dad. And he said uh, Don Carson picked a fight with his dad. And he said he knew that his dad, his bad name was Bill. He said he knew that my dad wasn't a wrestler. And he said he didn't like the payoff. And he said, I was standing there when it started. And he said, uh, Don Carson beat up my dad really bad. He blacked both of his eyes. Wow. And then after he told the story, he looked straight into the camera and he said, uh, you know, he said, basically, he's, he's talking straight to Don Carson. He says, since that day, Don Carson, I wanted nothing more than to get even with you. And uh, he said that if I win the Southeastern Championship from the Mongolian Stomper tomorrow, it'd be just like taking the title away from you. And if I could do that, he said, I'd feel like I've gotten some revenge for my dad. Yeah. And, uh, boy, the fans were definitely into Jimmy, man. And, and they let him know they liked what he said. You know, they they popped, uh, they loved it, and uh, Jimmy had a great following. Oh, it sounds like it. I want to ask you, too, because he had just been the main event where he was uh, f facing uh, Nelson Royal. Was that the first time that Jimmy was the main event? Jimmy had been on some main events. Jimmy's a pivotal character in Southeastern. I went there in 74, and it wasn't long before Jimmy arrived. And Jimmy had basically been there for almost two years. Mm. He's one of the only guys that had been there the entire time, uh, except maybe for Ron Wright. At this point, Jimmy was really over. He had had some championship matches. He had mm. had some matches on top. But uh, he was really, at this point, on fire in that territory. And his one-hour draw with uh, the world junior champion was a tremendous match. And he deserved a shot at the champion, at, at yeah. the Mongolian yeah. stomper. And this was his deal, man. So, uh, so he was ready for it. Um, and, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Plus, you and Rob were doing the booking you had and cousins at that. You had to be really proud of your cousin. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Jimmy was always a tremendous wrestler. But he was really, really hitting his strides. You know, he was he was as good or better than he had ever been. You could tell Jimmy was really going places. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, as time went by, Jimmy just gets better and better. Wow, he plus, becomes one of the greatest workers. In, yeah, in plus he's your cousin. You don't have to pay him as much, right? No. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you, you want to take care of your family a little <laughs> bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he goes on to become Bunkhouse Buck, man, in yeah, WCW. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he has himself a heck of a career, yeah, along with sure. being in the stud stable and a whole lot of things. Jimmy had it going. But we're basically at the close of the show. And uh, and the, the close of the show, Les brings me in. I bring out the Southeastern TV trophy, and he announces that next week I'm going to be defending it the following Saturday on next Saturday's show. 
Uh, and immediately out come Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. They come to the set, and uh, Kurt uh, grabs the microphone, and he challenges me. He says, if he's going to wrestle somebody for the trophy, let it be me. He's got his German accent. I'll kick him out. I'll take him. You know, and uh, <laughs> and they, the two of them kind of corner me behind the desk. Uh, so I accepted Kurt's challenge. Uh, you know, I said, heck, yeah, I'll, I'll wrestle you for the deal. And, uh, and they were about to make a move on me, and Ron Wright, man, appeared. He kind of hemmed them in from behind, and, boy, the studio crowd was ready, man, for more. They had seen the the Steinborn and the Gladiator deal, and uh, they started the old chant of go, 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 and uh, Les got the, between the four of us, you know, and he, he started closing out the show, and the studio crowd was going crazy. I mean, uh Boy, the two February rating books, man, were off to a great start right there in that first Saturday. I don't think fans ever even knew what to expect at either the Coliseum or on TV, Ron. I mean, you guys were just you were just flipping the script on a regular basis. So I'm sure the next three TVs in that rating period are just absolutely tremendous. So uh, way to go, man. Way to keep them guessing. Where to now? Well, how about the results of the card uh, that we we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, the opening match, uh, like I said, was Rip Smith, who was really improving against Bill Dundee. And, man, that match had everything you could ask for in an opening match. Opening matches in wrestling were tremendously important. And, wow, this one got the afternoon off to a tremendous start. It, it really ended well, too. I mean, uh, you know, it was a lot of wrestling in the match. And, boy, uh, Rip Smith hooked him with a real quick pin. At the end, and the crowd got a nice pop, and uh, we were off and running that afternoon. Von Steiger's non-title match with me and Ron Wright, we were on second because of what had happened on the TV the day the day before with the Gladiator and Dick Steinborn. I wanted to push them up the card a little bit. So Ron and I uh, got a very rare win over this tag team of the Von Steigers. They were a tremendous tag team. It was not for the championship. Well, we beat him right in the middle of the ring. And uh, and we were actually going to be coming back to wrestle him for the title the next Sunday. So the third match ends up being the Gladiator and Dick Steinborn. And now I'm not going to give people uh, the end of that match here because they're the subject of this learning tree that's coming up next. And uh, this match happens to be the topic of the learning tree. And uh, we'll cover that when I get to it. So the first semifinal Cadillac tournament match was next. Bob Armstrong against uh, the newcomer, the crazy newcomer, Dick Slater. And boy, this match tore the house down. Uh, It started out as a pure wrestling match. Great wrestling for probably 10, 15 minutes. And boy, it pretty quickly ended in a brawl. Uh, Now, boy, Bob Armstrong just took the roof off that building. He got Slater crisscrossing off the ropes, and he just jumped in there and hooked him in a beautiful sleeper hole. Uh, wow, that crowd popped so good. The people downtown Knoxville must have heard that crowd. It was like, boy, they just went crazy. They loved Bob Armstrong anyway. And then he really surprised them with his sleeper finish. So the second semifinal Cadillac match between Rob and Ronnie Garvin who for only the second time in the tournament ended in a 30-minute time limit draw. Now, the tournament rules early on were announced that if the match was a draw, that both men took a loss. And if you lost two matches, you were out of it. 
Now, that being the rules, but they couldn't apply to this. You know, this is the first time that anybody had had, there had been one semifinal, there had been one match that had the 30-minute time limit rule, draw, and in that match, both guys took a loss. But uh, in this particular match, this is for the winner. This is for who's going to wrestle in the finals. So mm-hmm. there had to be a winner. So the crowd was going crazy the entire match, and they loved it, and especially toward the end of the match, about when the time limit was about to run out. And when it did actually run out and the bell was rang, everybody in that coliseum was on their feet. But none of the attendants, like the timekeeper and the announcer and the referee, they didn't know what to do about this ending. This is in a draw, and, uh, you know, you can't have both guys take a loss. you got to have a winner. So thank goodness Les Thatcher's in the back back there. He watches this, and he sees that, man, they don't know what to do. So he goes down to the ring. He huddles them up. He talks to the referee, the timekeeper, the announcer. And, uh, and the decision's pretty quickly made, and it's agreed upon by Ronnie Garvin and Robert that the winner would be decided by the toss of a coin. So, wow. There they are. Now, this is the toss of a coin for a, a beautiful brand new Cadillac. I mean, yeah. wow. You know, somebody's out just because they don't get this. So, so Les gets into the ring. Uh, he takes a, a Phil Rainey in there with him, and the referee's in there. And Les announced, takes the microphone away from Rainey, and he announces that the winner and wrestler that moves on to the finals next week for the Cadillac is going to be decided by the toss of the coin. Boy, I had never seen such an important coin toss, you know, and, uh, and boy, neither had the crowd. I mean, they all stood up then. They were already up, but, man, they all stood up then like, wow, this is a heck of a way to end this. Mm-hmm. So. Let's ask Rob what side of the coin he wanted. And then uh, he announced, uh, you know, the ladies and gentlemen, uh, Rob has, has picked heads. So he flipped the coin and he looked at it, laying on the mat there. And then he announced again, ladies and gentlemen, the coin is tails. Oh, wow. <laughs> that building exploded in booze. I mean, wow. You couldn't, uh, it, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. Jeez. And, uh, so Garvin just jumped in the air, man. He started celebrating immediately. Boy, he just jumped <laughs> through the ropes, hit the floor. He literally ran to the dressing room. Like, don't let him change it, man. <laughs> you know, right. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'll go, I'm going to get the shot at the car. And uh, poor old Rob, I watched him, man. I was back by the curtains and, the, and he hung his head, man, and he walked slowly back toward the dressing room. But when he started back to the dressing room, it was amazing. The fans came from everywhere. They mobbed him, and they were all just trying to touch him, and they were offering their condolences, man. You could tell they were like, oh, Rob, I'm so sorry, man. You you lost by just a coin toss, you know? So the main event, it's time for the main event. And, uh, boy, that was another great match. Uh, Jimmy Golden really showed how he was improving, man. Uh, you know, Stomper had him down. Stomper really put it to him big time, uh, like he'd been doing to everybody that was in there with him. But Jimmy made this tremendous comeback at the end of the match, and the fans were just tearing the building down. You know, they could not believe that uh, he was taking it to the Stomper. 
And then Jimmy set the stomper up, slammed him in the middle of the ring, and went up the top rope and drop kicked the stomper from the top rope. Stomper sailed backwards into the referee. Referee's not paying attention to what the hell's coming up. Uh-huh. Both of those guys went down. Stomper's down, the referee's down. Jimmy goes over and he covers the stomper. But obviously, there's nobody there to count him out. Mm-hmm. So you got old Don Carson. He's out there on the floor, right? And uh, Don, since he started handling the stomper, he'd been wearing the same big old, oh, cumbersome, just huge sport coat. Didn't fit him. You know, I was like, gosh, man, I think I asked him, Don, you need to get you some another coat, man. It don't fit you. It's too big. So anyway, Don's out there, and he's got that big old sport coat on, and there's uh, Jimmy down on top of Stomper, and the uh, referee's down, can't see what's happening, and old Don enters the ring, and that uh, boy He's behind Jimmy. Jimmy don't see him that he's even in the ring. Jimmy's uh, looking for this referee. Hey, who's going to count him out? And O'Don digs down in that sport coat, and guess what Uh-oh. he brought out, man? The old black glove, by God. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And he loaded her up. <laughs> Boy, that crowd exploded, man. Uh, they knew what was coming next, I tell you. And, uh, Golden never saw Don. He was even making an imaginary three count. Uh, you know, he counted three on the mat like he was the referee, but yeah. he wasn't the referee, you know. So Carson's right behind him. He had the glove all loaded up, man. He just reached down there and he laid it to him in the back of the head. And then he took the glove off and put it inside his coat and he left mm-hmm. the ring. And Stomper rolled over. Jimmy's laying there now and Stomper rolled over on top of him and the referee. Finally comes around and crawls over there and he counts Jimmy out. Uh. <laughs> so, man, in that building, boy, they shook. That building just shook to the rafters, man, from the booze, man. Uh, you know, and Carson was, that the heat was unbelievable, you know. And uh, Carson grabbed the belt. He went around and grabbed the belt from the timekeeper. And he got Stomper out on the floor with him. And uh, then a huge number of policemen. And then we had great policemen there. And we were paying probably 30 police because our building was full of people and wanted to have more protection than not enough. And this big, huge number of policemen surrounded those two guys when they left the ring. But by the time they got back there to the curtain, there was a mob of fans that was following them back toward the curtain in the back of the Coliseum. It was the first time Carson had actually been involved in a win to get his stomper a victory and uh and it wasn't going to be the last man what an afternoon for those southeastern fans a little bit of everything right there from the highs of the armstrong's win to the lows of jimmy's loss and a coin toss at that so what was the attendance for this one ron Five thousand four hundred, dave wow I mean, it was just a little more than 100 shy of the world title uh, night with uh, Terry Funk of October 10th, 1976. So it's right at an all, all-time record crowd, 5,400. No doubt. What do you think was the big draw? Is it the stomper? Is it just the intensity of building up to the, the winner of the Cadillac? What do you think was the real draw? I think it's a combination of all of both of those things and maybe even more things. Uh, you got this Dick Slater that they've never seen before. Who's right down there at the end of the tournament. 
Cadillac, the whole concept of a Cadillac tournament was the last match. So, you know, I'm looking at this crowd and I'm thinking this building ain't big enough for what's going to happen next week because uh, those finals is what the whole tournament is about. So, yeah, it's a combination of the stompers uh, coming in at this time frame. Uh, uh, Garvin's really red hot. You've got new guy like Slater who's down into the last four. Things were cooking. <laughs> That's what it was, man. Territory was on fire. No doubt. And one more thing I want to ask about Carson. Was he better as a manager drawing heat or as a wrestler? What, what do you think he was the best at? And he had to be one of the best at really drawing heat from the crowd. Oh, man. It, it, it really didn't make a, any difference with Don Carson. Don Carson just had a way of making people hate him. And, uh, you know, it didn't make any difference whether he was wrestling or managing. But he becomes a tremendous manager for the Stomper. And, uh, wow, you know, I've already hired a guy. I'm about to hire this guy full-time, a policeman, to go on the road with the two of them because their heat is so immense that oh wow, I have to – they have a bodyguard. They basically well, have a police bodyguard that follows them <laughs> to all these small cities that we go under wrestle in because they have so much heat. Um, and and I, I was worried about him many, many times. Wow. It's no doubt that it just seemed like the, the, the Richter would go up when Carson was involved, uh, whether he was wrestling or as a manager. All right. That's good stuff. I think it's time we get that cold drink. Let's sit under the learning tree. Remind us again about the question and the person that asked. Let's get that set up. Okay, the, the learning tree question for this one came from a guy named uh, Thomas Stone. And, uh, and he asked, you've been dangling an angle in front of us for months now between the former gladiator, uh, Dick Steinborn, and Jim Dalton, the man who became the gladiator after Steinborn was hurt and disappeared from Southeastern in October of 1976. Why have you waited so long to pull the trigger on this angle? And it's a super question, Dave. I mean, you know, uh, people were really into this little thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and they kept wondering, why aren't these guys wrestling each other? So uh, I, I'd been stalling uh, on bringing this angle further up the card for a long time. And before I answer this, this gentleman's question, I think his subject deserves a deeper dive. So let's go back to Dick Steinborn's arrival in Southeastern on the Coliseum show of Sunday, March 14th, 76, uh, he was the Mid-American champion. Adding a talent like Dick Steinborn to the Southeastern crew was a big shot in the arm, man, for the company. He was a second-generation wrestler. He was the son of a man recognized as one of the strongest men in the world, Milo Steinborn. Dickie, as most people called him, he had been a star since he was... 18 years old, he started in New York as a star at 18 years old. He'd been a star all over the world. Uh, and, and, you know, I was just amazed that I could convince him to come to Southeastern. Uh, he was really, really one of the top guys in the business at this point. So his knowledge of the sport then went far beyond just his ability in the ring as well. He was full of ideas. He had all these angles that he had worked and he had seen work in different places in the world. He had the ability to be a great commentator. Uh, he had wrestling knowledge as well as being a first-class photographer. He'd produced the programs for his 
father's Orlando, the city of Orlando, for many, many years and mm. that sold it to wrestling matches, took the photos and wrote the stories. I mean, okay. his mere presence in Southeastern just made the company stronger. He was a great guy to have there. So two and a half months after he arrived on June the 4th, 1976, it's a night that I, I gave the nickname of the Southeastern Slaughter to. It's the night that Steinborn, Carson, and myself were all injured that night. All of us went to the hospital that night. And Steinborn and myself got injured by Tor Tanaka, Norvell Austin, and Homer Odell. We were wrestling against each other, and the three of them got involved in our match for no reason. And uh, all three of us were out for, for some time because of what happened on June the 4th. So when Steinborn returned to Southeastern two months later, about the first week in August of 1976, he came back wearing a mask, and he was calling himself the Gladiator. And he was there basically to get his revenge on Tanaka Austin and Homer Odell. And uh, he wrestled every match as the Masked Gladiator, but uh, he never did an interview with the mask on. He did an interview as Dick Steinborn without a mask. You know, and boy, the heels really hated that. I don't know if you remember this, uh, you know, but but the heels really hated that. And it, and it gave them that much more to complain about, other than the fact that they knew and the fans all knew that Dick Steinborn was a gladiator. And they wondered, why didn't he just interview as the gladiator? What's the deal? And Steinborn was just having a whole bunch of fun, yeah, sticking it to the heels, you know, claiming uh, that he wasn't a gladiator. You know, I'm just out here speaking for the gladiator. So talent was fast changing in the territory. Uh, in the fall of 1976, and the gladiator was soon involved with another group of heels because uh, Novell Austin was gone, and uh, some of the guys were gone. And, and in place of the, that group, uh, he, he got involved with the Von Steigers. He got involved with the great Mephisto and Louis Tillet. And on Friday, October 29th of 1976, the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, got badly injured by these four guys. They on purpose sent him to the hospital. And he wasn't even in the match in which he got hurt. He went in the match to help his buddies. And they paired him off, and all four of them got on him, and he disappeared from Southeastern again. About two weeks after he goes that time, another gladiator appears in wearing the same outfit, uh, <laughs> Looking just like uh, Dick Steinborn, except he obviously wasn't Dick Steinborn. And and now was the heel's turn to have some fun, you know. So the new gladiator was a heel wearing Steinborn's exact same gladiator outfit. And fans were obviously immediately aware what was going on, but they were confused. Where's the original gladiator, Dick Steinborn? And why is the new gladiator a heel? And the old gladiator was a baby face. So this long running and unusual angle ran basically from March of 1976 to January 2nd of 1977 on the night when Dick Steinborn is going to return. And this is two months after that injury that put him out. And he returns not as the gladiator this time, but he's there now as Dick Steinborn. He teamed that first night back with Jimmy Golden against two of the guys that had hurt him, the Von Steigers. That night, Dick Steinborn went out there and watched a guy go to the ring 
dressed in his outfit, <laughs> looking just like him, and called himself the gladiator and came back to the dressing room. What in the hell is going on here? <laughs> you know, who is that out there? You know, so it's finally time now, uh, two months after that injury, to blow the top off this long running angle, basically. So I've explained basically the entire angle, lasting almost a year involving Dick Steinborn. So, Mr. Stone, uh, let me answer your question then now. I guess it's a good time. Why have you waited so long to pull the trigger on this angle? That was your question. Well, I'd been what I like to call as a booker, spicing this angle for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And by spicing an angle, I mean I was continuing to keep it hot but not setting the angle on fire. And then I was doing that by every time that Dick Steinborn went to the ring and caused the gladiator to lose matches by going down to ringside, I was spicing the angle. It was getting hotter and hotter. And uh, that didn't just happen in Knoxville. It happened in every city where we held matches from January 2nd until this event, the upcoming event, he's going to be battling trying to get back and even with this guy. So by this stud cast, it had happened almost 30 times all over the Southeastern Territory in which he had gone down and caused the new gladiator to lose a match. So every time it did it in every town, it got a pop. It was unbelievable, you know. He had even done it once on TV. So the most important thing was every time it happened, it occurred in a different way. Mm. So. Now it was finally time to begin the end of this long angle. Problem was now, Dave, I had such a tremendous card on Sunday, February 6, 1977, that I couldn't get the Steinborn and Gladiator match any higher than four matches from the main event. (laughs) It's like, wow, this is a main event. This is a big match. But the gosh, everything was doing. So I had moved Ron Wright and myself. We were going to be in the third match of the night. We moved to the second match of the night so that they could put a little more emphasis on their match. Oh, wow. And, uh, so, you know, basically what's going on here, Dave, is Southeastern's, uh, you know, at this point is the perfect example of a territory on fire. Yeah. When you've got that much going on, that much great talent, and you've got an angle that's been brewing for a year, mm-hmm. and uh, you can't get it close to the top, you've really got something good happening. So I'm going to give everybody the finish for this match. You know, I told, earlier I said I'd, I'd do that. So these two had a tremendous match. And they'd already had the big fight the day before on television, so the fans were into this match all the way from beginning to end. And both of these guys were bleeding at the end of the match. And Steinborn was the first one to start bleeding, and then the gladiator was bleeding. Steinborn tore the front part of his mask off of his face and uh, the referee had to stop the match he disqualified both the wrestlers and the match was just like what happened on tv it was totally out of control so with the bell ringing and everybody in the building on their feet Steinborn had the gladiator's mask almost entirely off his face and the von steigers came back to ringside they had just wrestled they came back to ringside and they wrapped a towel around the new gladiator's face and head to prevent people from recognizing. So Ron Wright and I 
uh, we're back there watching the match, you know. And uh, so we went to the ring to get after the Von Steigers. So Steinborn and the Gladiator, they fought back toward the huge curtain at the back of the Coliseum. And Wright and I fought the Von Steigers back up into the ring where we just beat them not two minutes early. So as commentators would say, all hell had broken loose and uh, and the Steinborn <laughs> Gladiator angle was now definitely on. And you had some of the best problems that you could have in wrestling when every match seemed like a main event. Yeah. Yeah. When you can't get guys that are really talented up your card to the top, that's what you want. That's the type of problems you want. Like I said, we were on fire. Southeastern was literally on fire. And you, you stuck with a formula. And how many matches per night? Uh, this particular card's got six matches on it. Most most nights, it's six matches. Uh, right. uh, we're going to have one uh, maybe next week uh, that may go seven matches. We're not uh, running 10 matches like they do in Madison Square Garden, 10, 11, 12 matches. Right, right. Uh, but uh, we're filling the ring with great stars, and uh, that makes a big difference. But during those matches at Madison Square Gardens, if you got 10 matches, there are at least three of those where that's uh, that's where you go to the bathroom or you go get popcorn. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, people don't even start to watch their matches uh, until the fifth match <laughs> of the night or so. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, well, they don't show up to the fifth match of the well, night. Well, what kind of impact did you guys have on the concession stand? Because everybody wanted to stay in their seats. <laughs> I wasn't concerned about that. I wasn't getting that money. <laughs> that was the city's money and the Coliseum's yeah. money. So I, I wasn't concerned about people uh, running to the concession stand. <laughs> I wanted to keep them in their seats. Yeah, absolutely. I bet they did well, though. All right. It is really crazy. All the things now happening in Southeastern. Some of the luckiest wrestling fans in the world were right there for these big events. That is absolutely awesome. Okay. On Facebook, join Ron on either or both of his Facebook sites that are not full at all. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud or author Ron Fuller Welch. Simply like and follow him there and you are automatically friends with a legend so you can join thousands of others who are already friends on Twitter and Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch super Studcast Number 37 has both parts released officially learn about maybe the best wrestler amateur or professional ever Danny Hodge. He died on Christmas day of 2020, Jerry Briscoe and cowboy bill Watts among others pay tribute to the man that couldn't be beat tnstud.com that's tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast and don't miss your chance to see southeastern continental dvds in a five pack it is wrestling's best deal for only 39.99 it includes shipping at tnstud.com click on the stud store on your personal piece of wrestling history so where does the ride take us next week, Stud? Well, we're going to obviously find out who's going to win that beautiful 1977 pink four-door Cadillac. Uh, it's going to be between Bob Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin. Uh, we've got two more title matches on that card. We've got a loser leave versus mask match on that card. Uh, and something really wild happens on this day. Uh, Sunday, February 13, 1977. That's going to shock every single person in that Coliseum. 
today's training is going to take us uh, next week uh, into the studio to make unique promos for Southeastern and the Learning Tree NWA World Title match was coming. And was it going to get the big buildup of the Terry Funk title defense in October? Oh, that'll be interesting to see how that compares. So a new Cadillac given away, another new record crowd, unique promos for Southeastern TV, and what's ahead for the NWA world title. It sounds awesome, Ron. Yep. Uh, the deeper we get in the 77, Dave, uh, you know, it just seems to get better the further we go. And, uh, and I want to thank all our listeners, obviously, and uh, for being with us and to remind them to tell their friends about us if, uh, if they really like what they're hearing and, uh, and uh, take care of yourselves, everybody out there and others around you, and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. This is David Summers thanking you for riding with us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 